Welcome to the Trainer's Bullpen, where trainers in the law enforcement space come to hear experts talk about their work, experience, and research into human performance, particularly as it relates to the critical aspects of training motor learning and crisis decision-making. The purpose of the Trainer's Bullpen is to help bridge the gap between law enforcement training and the findings of academic research and current pedagogical best practice. Our desire at the Trainer's Bullpen is to help advance law enforcement training, make research applied, and improve officer and public safety. The Trainer's Bullpen is a production of Raptor Protection, and I'm Chris Butler, your host. Now, on to today's show. Welcome to episode 22 of the Trainer's Bullpen, the evaluation of tactical movement and firearm draw performance during charging knife attacks with Dr. Michael Cantor, Assistant Professor of Exercise Physiology at Ohio Northern University. It is, of course, no surprise to law enforcement officers and trainers that edge weapons can pose a lethal threat to officers. Many of the critical blood-bearing vessels lie very close to the surface of the skin, and even a small blade or an improvised edge weapon can quickly inflict potentially fatal injuries. Law enforcement trainers owe an extreme debt of gratitude to Lieutenant Retired Dennis Tuller, who in 1982 first explored the question of at what distance does someone charging at an officer with an edged weapon pose a potentially lethal threat to the officer? Well, Tuller found that a subject could cover 21 feet in the time it took an average officer to draw their handgun and fire one round. Now, although some additional peer-reviewed research has been done since Tuller's original work, on how fast suspects can sprint and cover ground and how long it takes officers to react, draw, and shoot, Dr. Cantor's current study using advanced measurement technology is the first one to deeply explore the movement patterns and draw kinematics of an officer when a suspect is rapidly charging. In this critically important interview, Dr. Cantor discusses the research, the findings, and the shocking implications of this study for law enforcement officers and trainers. Summary of the implications include the myth of the perfect draw technique and the fact that successful officers do not repeat techniques, they solve problems and repeat desired outcomes. One-handed shooting at close range, those attacks, the brain will drive forward the draw and shooting response at the speed of survival. This typically involves shooting one-handed as the muzzle clears the holster. Next, movement is king. And static range training instills exactly the opposite outcomes that officers need to survive these encounters. Next, functional fitness is lacking. Fitness training regimens need to be designed to develop the explosive fast-twitch muscle system that officers need to be able to move rapidly and many more important takeaways from this interview. This study, the evaluation of tactical movement and firearm draw performance during charging knife attacks, was published in Police Practice and Research in 2023. And just a reminder, this study is available to you over at the Trainers Bullpen website at www.trainersbullpen.com. And today it's my pleasure to welcome to the show Dr. Michael Cantor, Dr. Cantor is Assistant Professor of Exercise Physiology at Ohio Northern University. Michael has worked as a fitness professional, researcher, and educator for almost a decade. 
Dr. Cantor has conducted and published research relating to various aspects of human factors pertaining to the performance of police officers in high consequence and rapidly unfolding events. Dr. Cantor, welcome to the trainer's bullpen, sir. Yeah, glad to be here. Excited. So uh, I'm excited too. I have read with great interest the research paper that you and your fellow colleagues published that we're going to be talking about today that has direct implications for law enforcement training. And the name of that paper, and uh, just a reminder for all our listeners that if you go to the Trainers Bullpen website at trainersbullpen.com, you'll be able to access and download a copy of Dr. Cantor's paper and strongly encourage you to do that. The paper is entitled The Evaluation of Tactical Movement and Firearms Draw Performance During Charging Knife Attacks. And Dr. Cantor, before I ask you um, uh, the first series of questions that I have for you, I went on to, because as a law enforcement trainer myself for over 25 years and 34 years experience as a law enforcement officer, was well aware of certainly the potential dangers of edge weapons attacks on the job, uh, had been attacked by an individual with an edge weapon at one point in my career. And uh, just as I was preparing for this interview, I thought, you know, I'll do a quick Google search just to look at how, what is what is the prevalence of these types of events happening. And just in recent, very recent, I'm talking the last month to six weeks, uh, I stopped counting on the, the number that I found on Google because the point was been made. We had a New York, Long Island uh, incident where two officers were stabbed, uh, one in the clavicle, the neck, in the groin, and the second officer in the chest when the edge weapon penetrated his body armor. In Charlotte, North Carolina, a police officer was stabbed in the neck while attempting to take a domestic violence suspect into custody. In Las Vegas, a Las Vegas Metro Police Department officer was stabbed after making contact with a suspect that he was attempting to take into custody. And the events just kept on coming. They were from Australia, New Zealand, the United Kingdom, Canada, Europe, where officers are being stabbed. So this is certainly a critically relevant issue. And we're grateful for the research that you've been done, that you have done. But I want to start by asking you this question. It's a question I ask all the researchers because I'm fascinated as to the motive. Like, what was it, uh, Dr. Cantor, that caused you and your fellow researchers to say, hey, you know what, let's examine this issue. Why this particular issue of edge weapon attacks and firearms draw performance? Yeah, so it, it originally started when we were putting together a brief commentary on the reasons why a police officer should approach the passenger side during a traffic stop. Um, and the reasons behind that with you know, just having the A pillar and B pillar and, and, and the passenger seat, just giving an officer more time to respond if it does um, turn violent. And when we were doing that, we that that's really when when we first stumbled upon uh, the 21 foot principle. And as the one of the few researchers really leading that charge, I started to uncover, you know, what it was and kind of just the brief overview of it. And what I found was, wow, this, this has been around for a very long time. And for your, for your listeners that may not know and, and who probably know, 
Um, it's been around since the 80s. It was actually created by Dennis Tuller. He was a lieutenant in uh, actually Salt Lake, uh, Utah. And there hasn't been much updates since then. And what, what we kind of saw was a gap in that, you know, not all violent encounters happen from such a distance away. And one of the main things that we kept on seeing was how this was kind of being used in blogs or other research that they, they, they were really trying to put it in a position where th this is the this is the only way, this is the best way. And, 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 we, and we found, hey, maybe if we can apply some additional human performance principles to this concept, maybe, maybe we can learn more about really the limits and the opportunity for officers to better be prepared given the situation that, hey, not all violent encounters happen at such a distance. It's, it's unrealistic to have an expectation or a principle that is that is kind of limited. So we wanted to expand on that. So that was really the motive is we saw a gap and there was a way for us using the technology that we had in, in our experiences to really hopefully add valuable information to help better prepare officers for the violent scenarios when they happen, not if. Right. No, that's very helpful. And I like your comment about the fact that not all of these encounters, and in fact, probably the majority of them, when you look at the Leoka data from year to year, they are initiated at distances much less than 21 feet. I think over 70, 75% of attacks on law enforcement officers occur at nine feet or less is the in initial initiating distance. But the reality also is that a lot of these attacks occur even when the officer is about to or is making physical contact with the subject. In fact, two of the incidents I read just from in the introduction, two of those incidents occurred while the officers were in physical contact with the individual. So I do appreciate those comments. I think this is really important. Now, how, as you were undertaking your study or beginning it, of course, you, you would have done a, a literature review or to look at the scope of the type of attacks. Can you talk to us a little bit about how prevalent are edged weapons attacks in law enforcement? What, what did you find? Yeah, so the, the really the main prevalence of knife attacks is it's usually an opportunity crime. Um, usually if it involves firearms, it's more pre premeditated, whereas those who have access to knives, I mean, it could, they, they could be kitchen knives, they, they could be anywhere within a house. Um, prim primarily it's in the kitchen, but people can conceal them in drawers and whatnot. And, and what we were finding is there, it's usually more prevalent in countries or continents for, for this case that have more restrictions on firearms. So places, as you stated earlier, Europe, Australia, those continents and those countries within it show a higher prevalence of knife crime just because those are the weapons that are of easy access. Um, there's even a lot of papers coming out specifically in the UK and, and, and in those surrounding countries about trying to modify how knives, kitchen knives are sold, actually removing the front end of the knife so they don't have a tip. So oh, the really 
Europe and Australia, they've been trying to deal with this problem for a long time. Um, first, you know, get getting rid of the the firearms and and, and now it's really trying to handle this um, knife um, issue that they're dealing with. Now in the United States, it's it's a little little different. Um, typically, a firearm is going to be used in 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 most violent encounters, statistically speaking. However, the prevalence and the ease of use for knives is is very very simple and 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 it's really growing in use because a lot, a lot of people are thinking oh there's an increased potential in you know regulation to even get a firearm or getting a firearm may be too challenging so a lot of those people turn to just a knife as a form of defense or offense i i would argue in a lot of cases and like you mentioned these attacks typically are happening at closer different di closer distances, and it's usually when the officer is actually trying to take this individual into custody. Rarely is it, you know, d really when when an officer is walking up to a house, individuals are charging at them. It's usually when they when they, you know, make a door knock and then the door opens and someone is charging out at them. So they're very spontaneous in nature, and the the biggest thing that we kept on seeing is a lot of times officers are put in a position where it's unfortunately a lose-lose for them. Either they get too close and, and they don't have enough time to really respond or the, the way that they respond may not be deemed um, appropriate for a lot of individuals. So it puts them in a bind and it makes them think twice about what they're doing and, and that's a lot of the reason why um, a lot of these assaults are occurring the way they do is because officers are really put in that bind where they can't really respond the way they potentially would instinctually respond. So that is, again, kind of that that our, our, our frame of why we did this is to really try to get as much understanding about how movement, but also just how these charging knife attacks don't really get a lot of attention. A lot of the attention goes towards understanding maybe what the officer's experiencing during that time, but not combining both the officer and the attacker in a joint experiment. And that's really how, how we found harmony with what we wanted to do with what was lost and, and, and lacking in the literature. Right. Okay. And you mentioned I, in your report that you quote uh, 2019 FBI data, and I think that's probably from Leoka, where you said 1,037 knife assaults uh, occurred in 2019 against officers. So that's fairly substantial. It's not a insignificant number of attacks. And, and I wonder, like, I'm just talking from my experience here. So you tell me if you know, if in your perception as a researcher, if if this is baseless, just but just my experience on the street is encountering people with edged weapons. Often they are uh, they have mental health issues, they have addictions issues, and they typically will arm. They'll carry a knife uh, because of their mental health issues as um, a measure of self defense. And so when officers are then making contacts with those types of people in the community, which we often do uh, because we get called about, you know, um, 
uh, behaviors that these individuals are exhibiting. And then the officers there making contact with the individual who's armed with an edged weapon. Did you, um, did any of that come through in your research about the difference between, because you mentioned premeditated where I think you're, you know, you're, you're onto something there where people who are criminally minded, cognitive aggressors, premeditated, they don't arm themselves with a knife. They arm themselves with a handgun, but in a different population, do you think edge weapons are much more prevalent in that population? Yeah, I, I necessarily can't speak on statistically the prevalence of, say, knife wielding in different populations. But what I can really speak on is the understanding that in the in the U.S., getting a firearm can be a little simpler, whereas those who are experiencing some type of me- mental health issue, they are going to get flagged and not be able to use or receive a firearm if they choose to. So they're going to have to resort to something um, easier, which for violent purposes, a a knife is a great way to conceal it and use it. Um, A lot of what we were trying to do in our study was look at the human performance factors of knife attacks and how, you know, we can apply our background as sports scientists to this population. I, I, I wouldn't feel confident in my understanding of the mental health and, and how that impacts um, weapon selection. But I definitely think there is a general understanding that those who may be experiencing those episodes or that disorder, they, they they may be more likely to act in those ways where they feel that they need to do whatever they need to do to protect themselves and are more likely to act spontaneously um, just out of desperation compared to those that are more premeditated are acting more logically to do some type of harm. So I think there's that balance, but I think there's a lot of work that's needed to understand that aspect and right. how, you know, b- before even getting into you know, knife attacks, you know, working on de-escalation and understanding cues of, of what's triggering individuals to act out and all of those preemptive actions that can be done. Whereas our study that a lot of what we're going to be talking about today is once all of those have, once all those ships have sailed, what do, what can we do? Right, exactly. And now you mentioned, so you briefly mentioned the 21 foot principle and i noticed you were very careful to use that word principle because most law enforcement trainers would use the word 21 foot rule and i think it was even published at one point in an old periodical called the 21 foot rule so uh, first of all i want to ask you why do you call it a principle rather than a rule and uh, and then i'll have a follow-up question on that yeah yeah so a, a lot of what we kind of were deciding um, was, you know, we, we heard both and it's, it, it, it was a fine line that we were walking because we wanted to make sure that, you know, when we discussed this, that we weren't necessarily trying to make the principle seem less than it was. We wanted to kind of discuss how there was more to expand on. So, you know, in our paper, we really wanted to highlight and you kind of saw is 
we wanted to make sure that uh, the term we used was it, it it allowed for expansion, whereas things like rule seems really concrete, whereas principle you you can build upon that, and and that's really why we used it. And you know, legally, how how we kind of discussed it was, you know, if if you use rule, you know, it's kind of set in stone. Now, if we can use principle, like how it was, again, how it was originally presented, it it, it allows for more um, expansion of it. So that that that's really the way we came at it because we, we we knew we had to be careful. Yeah, sure, and that makes that makes perfect sense. And the reality is that there are very few, if any, tactical rules in law enforcement. I mean, because as soon as you use that term a rule it becomes inviolable like you said it becomes concrete and officers are always operating within a milieu of contexts contexts that are constantly changing and different in every incident so to look at these types of um, tactics as principles is certainly i think a more appropriate way to go now you mentioned in in your paper here in the introduction uh, some research by an individual by the name of Sandal et al. Sandal and colleagues that was done in 2020 that I think built upon the 21 foot principle. Uh, can you tell us a bit about what was the work that Sandal did and how did that add to the understanding of the 21 foot principle? Yeah, so um, Sandal and 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 his group they were really one of the first to really reevaluate this 21 foot principle. And um, the way they did that was it was separated into three different parts. Um, the first one was they actually just had individuals, college-age students, run 21 feet and to record how long it took. Um, then they had officers um, just draw their firearm and discharge their weapon once and recorded how long that took. And then the last part was they actually had the students now charging at the officers and the officers then had to make different tactical uh, movements to record um, how successful they were. So that really set the ground stage of, you know, what individuals are trying to do now. And, and we kind of reported on what they did was they actually took that information and they extrapolated based off of the success rates that they found at individuals um, drawing and firing in response to that, those individuals charging. And they said, in order for 95% of the officers to be successful for a charging knife attack with their sample, the average individual had to be 32 feet away. And we thought, well, the original um, 21 foot principle by Tuller they had their individuals discharge their weapon twice. And this study had them discharge their weapon once. Um, with that, um, we saw the how these different movements affected performance. Um, it can be expected that if you create space in between someone charging at you, you're, you're going to increase um, the success rates. And that's really what they found. And one of the things that they didn't really report on in that study was how long were the firearm draws in the actual attack? And also what were some, you know, modifications made to their firearm draw to accommodate completing a response on time? 
So we found a couple of, you know, gaps that we could really fill is understanding, well, what are these officers doing in the actual charging um, attack to make them more efficient, to make them successful? But also going back to our point earlier, you know, knife attacks aren't occurring just at 21 feet, let alone at 32 feet is what they extrapolated out because the um, officer's average draw time was about 1.8 seconds. So we found that, well, maybe if let's, let's apply a lot of these principles, let's add some movement, but now let's have actual attacks coming from 21 feet, but also now closer 15 feet and even closer than that 10 feet, but then also consider what they found in terms of they, they assumed 32 feet was going to be the absolute needed to do 95% of the officers to be successful. So we thought, well, let's do 30 feet just because it's a nice standardized number and we, we, we can go from there if, if building off of it, if something drastic comes out, we were under the impression going into it that 30 feet was going to be more than enough for um, the officers to respond. Um, and as we go through this, we'll kind of see that that was necessarily the, the case for what we found. Okay, great. And I have uh, just a couple of clarifying questions. So when you mentioned the word successful and talking about the sandal study, did uh, when what does that mean successful does that mean that the officer was able to discharge to get a shot off before being contacted with the edge weapon or or what was the definition of that yes so for for their study it was if the officer was able to return fire prior to getting contact from the individuals charging so we followed that same suit with our study following that, a survi the survivability rate is kind of what we termed it as, is the officer able to return fire, not just one shot, but both shots um, prior to the um, individual charging, basically coming within arm's reach or past the extended firearm prior to that second um, bullet being discharged. So yeah, we, we had to kind of we, we we didn't want to be biased in terms of how we were reporting it because when you say success rate, you 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 think, oh wow, it's it's a good thing if officers are able to, you know, respond and you know potentially harm or or kill an individual. And uh, but for clarity purposes, we had to be very um concrete in what we wanted that to represent. So that's how that's kind of how we built upon um, our term, our definition for success in our study. Okay. Now in the original Tuller study that was done and in the Sandal study, did the officers, so were they aware that an individual was going to begin charging at them with a knife? So what I'm trying to get at here is that were they already primed with that information? And so they were just perceiving and responding, or was there some assessment phase in the in the decision making loop? Nope, you you are exactly right. They they were primed. They knew that some that the individual was charging. It was just a matter of when. So it was strictly reaction time and skill execution at that point. There was no uh, startle of oh they're moving now. I have to react. That that wasn't the case. They knew. Um, that the individual was charging at them. So we want to be as consistent with what was what was previously done to kind of mirror 
um, and, and build upon the original 21 foot principle, but also sandals work, which was great. It really laid a good foundation for us to build upon and to expand on. Sure. No, and I, I think that's great. That's helpful. Um, but it's just one thing for the listeners to be aware of is really uh, taking away that that in, in Boyd's OODA loop, the orientation, this the sense-making piece of it um, is, is fine as long as we understand that the results really present a best case scenario for reaction time when you eliminate that out of the decision-making process. Would, would you agree with that? I couldn't agree with you more. Um, we we previously did a study where we looked at a uh, basically an ambush with a firearm from across the room. It was roughly 20, 25 feet away. And, and we recorded startle response time, actually. So the the physical movements that occurred in response to the stimulus of us per basically essentially attacking um, officers from across the room. And what we found was up to on average, it was around three quarters of a second. So, you know, again, another piece of the pie that is crucial to understand when you're interpreting um, a lot of, you know, these primed situations, best case scenario is, you know, out on duty, when things are occurring, nothing's perfect. So it could be lighting, it could be, you know, it could be bright, it could be too bright, you could be facing the sun. So everything could be delayed a little bit. And this, our study really gives best case scenario. This is kind of the human performance factors that you can expect. Perfect. Great. And so, uh, Dr. Cantor, what were the research questions then that as you, so you looked at Sandal's work and you said, okay, let's uh, replicate this, but let's go further. Let's look at firearm draw performance. Let's look at officer movement and tactics and different distances. So what research questions or hypotheses did you and your colleagues have going into this? Yeah. So our first just general aim was to examine the uh, firearm draw performance and survivability rates. Um, using three different um, tactics in response to a charging knife attack. So stationary, lateral, and moving offline, which, which we'll kind of discuss more throughout. Um, and really what we were interested in was how do those three tactics and firearm draw performance kind of differ at 10, 15, 21, and 30 feet. Now, we kind of wanted to see what was the safest distance and what was the best defensive tactic implemented on to to kind of end with the highest rate of success. So again, our hypothesis was, of course, the 30 foot distance would be the safest. But in terms of tactic, we we sought out and, and thought the, the lateral um, tactic, which was moving offline to the holstered side, was going to have the highest rate of success. And then kind of our last more exploratory aim was just to see kind of how um, officers firearm drop performance was during those scenarios and what was optimal, like what was the, what would lead to a higher success? What, and, and, and we'll kind of talk about those modifications that we saw and specifically the firearm drop performance times that can be kind of seen as, you know, a goal to be able to get to, to ensure protection at those certain distances. Excellent. One of the most common things that I have encountered, and I suspect other trainers have as well, is the natural reaction of officers when there's that, especially spontaneous attack at close range, is to, as you try to get distance 
because the I think the brain is just naturally wanting you to get f- far away from that threat. And so the it seems the automatic response is to backpedal quickly. And officers are often as they're scrambling and backpedaling to try to get their their handgun out. Did you look at at backpedaling as a tactic in this in this study as well? We did. Yes, we did. And it it, it was actually very um, hard for our officers when we actually had them hold still. They they instinctually moved every, a, a couple of times. And, we, you know, we had to re- redo it and say, you know, you, you got you got to try to stay still. I know it's hard. Um, but they definitely, um, we, we, we did the backpedal and then the, the moving directly lateral, um, a, a lot of the, um, officers that we had, they kind of had a mix between backpedal and lateral kind of going at a 45 degree angle backwards rather than a straight 90 degrees or straight backwards. So they kind of had that mix just instinctually. A lot of it was, you know, that's just what they practiced so us trying to kind of cue them and get them to do um kind of against the grain for some of these was um an interesting experience sure okay why don't you tell us a bit about the methodology how did you outfit the officers and and how did you undertake the study yeah so we had a good uh a collaboration with a local police department they were awesome and uh basically what we had them do was when they came in we hooked them up. I mean, obviously, I guess I have to say this, we did all of their violent, more weapons were removed and and they were just given a a official training pistol with with some munition rounds. Um, But then we hooked them up with um, wearable motion sensors and that allowed us to see joint kinematics um, up to 128 Hertz per second. So that means we were getting 128 measurements and the elbow, shoulder, all the joints of the body every second throughout the entire scenario. Um, in addition to that, we had them um, recorded using a high-speed camera. And then the individual who was charging at them was just equipped with a rubber training knife. And essentially what we did was starting at the closest distance, which was 10 feet, the tactic was randomized. um, So the charger couldn't, was unaware with the, what the scenario was going to be, whether the officer was going to stand still, move lateral or move back. And then they executed each of those motions. And then we moved further 15 feet, 21 feet and 30 feet. And then I, I, I guess I kind of fast forward a little bit um, at the beginning of the entire trial before they did any charging knife attacks, we just collected a baseline draw. We just wanted to see under no duress when we just asked them, hey, I want you to execute a practice draw as, as quickly as you can and discharge twice. And, and, we, and then we recorded that time. And that was used to kind of see the differences in firearm draw performance at each of the distances, but also when executing each of those tactics. So in conjunction with the camera and the wearable kinematic sensors, we were able to get really good rich data on firearm draw performance, trigger cadence, and also attack speed um, from the knifed attacker who was uh, essentially trying to simulate um, the 21 foot principle speed, which is around in 1.5 seconds, you're covering 21 feet, which is anywhere from nine to 11 miles per hour. So each charging attack was simulating that exact speed that was deemed 
an average healthy male traveling. So we really tried to replicate the original 21 foot principle as much as we could, but by also elaborating on Sandal's study to make it a little more in depth with a little more uh, measurements taking into account. And those wearable sensors. So you said they're recording at 128 Hertz. So, I mean, that, that, that must've been just a, a, a amazing amount of data at the end oh. of that, uh, at the end of that study. How many sensors were on each officer? So we had uh, 15 sensors on each officer. So we you, you could see almost any limb of interest, elbow, knee, ankle, head, neck, hips, you could see it all. Of course, we focus a lot of our attention on the um, arms um, to really get a better understanding of the firearm draw. And one of our figures, you can really see the breakdown of the firearm draw specifically on the dominant elbow. And that really gives a good indication of kind of the different phases all the officers had to go through in to just receive the weapon, but also to discharge it um, in a short amount of time, which was very uh, enlightening for us to kind of see. And it allowed us to really be able to pick apart the effective portions of the firearm draw for a lot of those um, officers, but also some of the drawbacks or modifications that they made because we were able to see it so clearly because of all those um, data points we were able to collect. Right. And I, I certainly noticed that when I read through the study and I was fascinated to see that just the difference, and we'll get to this, so I, I, a bit of a, spoil, a spoiler though, is that when you looked at the kinematics of the draw stroke on those different distances, I was amazed to see the variation that existed in, in really officers were not replicating a draw stroke. Like there, I think we often think as firearms trainers, and this is the point I want to make now as we go on is we spend so much time on the range, on the static range, just draw stroke, two-handed draw stroke, draw stroke, draw stroke. And we think if we just get this, this biomechanic or this kinematic pattern down, then that's what the officer is going to replicate in the real world. And it just doesn't work that way. And your study to me just really blew that out of the, you know, blew that that myth out of the water. Yeah. And, and, and we didn't expect that going in. We had in, we, we had some thoughts that, you know, with, with, you know, standardized um, draw speeds and how long it would take to, for an individual to charge at 10 or 15 feet, we kind of had a thought like, you know, these officers in order to be successful are going to have to make some modifications where that was going to be, we had some hunches, but really what we saw and, and a lot of those pictures that we shared um, really demonstrate just those small but really critical modifications that um, a lot of the officers made. And, and again, those were mostly at 21 feet and closer, specifically at 15 and 10 feet. Almost all of the officers at 30 feet, it was your standard firearm draw that you would see on the range. But, you know, when things hit the fan and it's at those closer distances, you know, instinct and, de and desperation really come in. And those changes that we saw um, were very clear. And it was it was very interesting to kind of see that. Absolutely. And it's one of the things that I often say is there's a, 
a world of difference between training at the speed of qualification on a static range and training at the speed of survival for a situation like this at close distance where someone is attempting to to seriously injure or kill an officer. And your study really highlighted that fact as well. So why don't you tell us then, give, give us an overview of the results you went into it with your hypothesis. And so what did you find? Yeah, so just general findings from kind of a 10,000 foot view kind of are, so our baseline um, firearm draw to discharge two bullets was around 1.41 seconds. That was the average time, which, you know, just comparing that one value with um, the with Tuller's 21-foot principle, it kind of makes sense. Um, the, the average was 1.5 seconds. That was kind of the number that is used to kind of guide the 21-foot principle with how much time an individual has. Now, what we found in terms of results from all the other distances, in terms of just survivability rates, our 10 foot distance, we had, we, we ranged from fit from 0% success rate to about 15% success rate. So very, very low. Um, the stationary tactic was not successful at all at 10 feet, regardless of any, it, 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 it just was not enough time, even though the officer knew it was coming. And I think that's really important here is they knew the individual was charging at them. The knife was visible. All they had to do was react and 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 return fire and and nobody could do it and then so, as so, we so yeah. let, I just I want to insert there before you go on because I don't want that this critical point to get lost is this idea where officers uh, can stand flat-footed because they think they have enough time just to remain stationary and draw their gun at a charging threat at ten feet. Uh, you found that there was zero success rate in that tactic. Yeah, yeah, and 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 you know, anecdotally, just us observing, it 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 wasn't even, it wasn't even close. And you can, we we only had four or five officers that were successful in each of the back pedal and lateral, and those were very very close in that, in those scenarios. So, and again, we, we always have to go back to, this is under perfect conditions. This is under, they know somebody has a knife already wielding and they know they're going to be charging. It's just up to them to react. So it's, it's the, the likelihood of success is so low. Um, however, as we moved further at, at 15 feet, our average success rate was around 58%. And with this one stationary, was quite a bit lower. Only 40% of the officers were successful. So again, it's really demonstrating that even at 15 feet, which, you know, compared to 10 feet, it's roughly a stride and a half further. It's still such a low success rate. And uh, luckily, as the individuals started moving at this 15 foot distance, um, the success rates really increased up to 65 to 70%, which isn't is 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 not ideal. I would say 100% is the ideal scenario. Um, however, our what we kind of found is you know that's really that sweet spot where you're going to see those officers who are highly skilled and proficient in movement and their response. Those are the ones that are going to be a lot more successful at that distance. Whereas those who aren't as rehearsed in their response, they're typically going to be a hit or miss 
um, at this distance. Whereas okay. as as we moved further at 21 feet, that that's really where all of our subjects were very, very successful. Um, and, and the reason being is at, at baseline, you know, they were able to draw 1.4 seconds and the attacker charging was around 1.5 seconds at 21 feet. So majority of the officers, 90 to 100% were successful at that distance. So that was really that distance where majority of the officers are going to be successful. And, and again, it kind of supports the idea per presented by um, Tuller that, you know, this 21 feet, this, this is really that sweet spot where majority of officers are going to be able to respond. Um, however, those officers who didn't actually, who, who, who weren't successful, it wasn't because they necessarily weren't fast enough. It was, and again, we didn't necessarily report on this, but it was a good observation that we saw is they just, they just made an error. Maybe their hand, their 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 hand slipped. Maybe they weren't able to withdraw it on the first pull. They had to go back for a second one. Those were it, it was those small details that that put them behind the curve, and that's what caused them not to be successful. So I think now, that's really sorry. Yeah. I want to. I just want to interject there because I think that is critically important for trainers to hear what Dr. Cantor just said is that when officers are now performing under pressure under real world pre and, and this wasn't even real world pre real world pressure this was just a research study but there was pressure to perform and even under the sterile research conditions there were performance errors and in the sporting world they would call that a choke so there's some some type of a performance failure that happened and again this is the, we often say that officers don't rise to the occasion, they fall to the level of their training and the critical importance that the training environment is representative of the criterion environment so that there's we reduce the chances of those types of performance errors happening. And doctor, you mentioned, I just want to go back to 15 feet for a second because this is important. So at 15 feet, the officers who stood stationary and attempted to draw, their survivability rate was 40%. But as soon as they started to move, the officers who moved laterally improved their survivability rate to 70%. And even those who began backpedaling improved their survivability to 65%. So again, I think the takeaway there is that movement is king uh, at those close distances, is starting to get your feet moving even before or certainly during the draw stroke process. Would you, would you agree with that? 100%. And a lot of the officers that were successful were the ones that were simultaneously moving and going to receive um, and, and, and get the, and deholster their firearm. A majority of the officers did that in majority of the cases, specifically at the closer distances. Um, but as they, you know, in, as the distance, you know, upwards of, you know, 30 feet when they were charging, it, it almost seemed like a lifetime for, for them to respond at that point. So the biggest, yeah, like, like, like you said, Chris, the biggest difference in movement and success was seen at 15 feet going from stationary to either backpedal or lateral. That was the biggest change and kind of the effect of movement was right at that 15 feet. Okay, great. Sorry to interrupt you there. Carry on. What else did you find? 
Um, we we also uh, recorded um, trigger performance, trigger cadence. So between the first and second uh, discharge bullet, we wanted to see how long it took them under the different conditions compared to their baseline of their 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 trigger performance, and and if the pressure and if the movement actually impacted it. And what we found was there was really no significant or, or, or meaningful difference. One of the constants that we can be sure about based off what we found was trigger cadence isn't going to change that much. And especially not enough to really drastically change the outcome or the duration of the firearm draw performance. And you know, we it, what we found supports pre previous literature of around 0.25 to 0.28 seconds for trigger cadence in between discharging one to the second bullet. So that was really informative for us because we weren't really sure how that was going to play a role in the officer's performance and how much effect that was going to have on overall the firearm draw. And it's important to note is that our firearm draw time that we reported includes the trigger cadence. So if a firearm draw was 1.4 seconds, that, in, that includes the 0.25 to 0.28 seconds of trigger time. So that's important to note that these officers, you know, in just looking at the numbers, they are moving extremely fast. But on the flip side, individuals who are attacking at those distances are moving extremely fast. So even though to the plain eye looking in on just the firearm draw time of point like one second or 1.4 seconds, you, you would almost assume that, oh, officers are at a really good advantage if they can be that fast to respond. But for us, when they were when 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 the individual was charging at them, I mean they they were covering it in 0.8 seconds or one second. And when you take that into account with their firearm draw and trigger cadence, it really puts a good picture in of really how far behind they are in in the in the stages of their firearm draw. One stage is getting the gun out and and getting sighted in, and the other stage is actually executing the discharge of the weapon. So that was our big kind of understanding of it's 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 not trigger cadence. It's really draw and 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 almost firearm mechanics at that point. And if they're fast enough and if they can adjust to the scenario, and that 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 adjustment is our big takeaway from this. And we have a really good table or sorry, figure kind of in our at the end of our results that really just compares the different distances between 10 feet, 15 feet, and then 20 and 30 feet. And clearly you can see the average uh, draw time is almost the same for 10 and 15 feet because the individuals, the officers, they couldn't move any faster. They were kind of tapped out on how quick they were able to respond. Whereas as the individuals, um, attack got further away at 21 feet and 30 feet, the individuals had more time to execute an effective firearm draw. And, and that's what's really displayed here is even regardless of the tactic being used, there was no difference in firearm draw, say at 21 feet, regardless of the tactic you used, firearm draw wasn't significantly different, say if you were stationary or if you were moving. So that leads us to say, well, 
movement is king. As as Chris, you, you said earlier, that's really the the big difference in success at those closer distance movement. It's it's if you're able to maintain that fast and efficient firearm draw, which is on average, we found almost a half a second faster than when we just told them to draw their weapon and, and fire. So this is a clear indication that officers are a lot faster than what we may think. But even though they are faster, they they aren't fast enough in a lot of scenarios. Right. So you, there's a difference then is what you're saying between the, I guess, what would be like a range condition where you just had them draw and you measured that speed and then their draw performance under pressure. So you're saying when when the human being, when the officer is under pressure, they, the speed with which that draw occurred was approximately half a second faster. Is that accurate? Yes, yes. It could be up to a half a second. Some were just, you know, two tenths of a second, which is still meaningful in in the parameters that we're talking about, which if if you if they could increase their draw time by 0.3 seconds, that's actually a whole that's the difference. 0.3 seconds is really the difference between are you able to discharge your weapon or not? Right. Absolutely. It's faster than a blink than you blink blinking our eyes right now. That's how much that's it's faster than that. So we're, we were really able to really understand what is the big factor here. And it was movement and it was every 10th of a second counts. And the big difference at those closer di distances was, which kind of wraps this all up is the modifications in, in their firearm draw. A lot of the officers at the closer distances they instinctually just decided, I'm not going to use my um, opposite arm to stabilize and use that in, in the firearm draw. They would either shoot from the close contact position, which is essentially their, their firearm is right on their chest, or they were shooting from the hip. Because that is what the scenario required. And it was very clear that some of the officers, some of the subjects knew that where some of the officers, and to, to to their credit, they they were probably slightly newer and not as experienced, but they but they didn't connect those dots of oh I need to modify to fit the scenario that I'm in now. That connection wasn't made for all the officers, and that's why the images that we're showing is from those modifications that were made. Right, and and for our listeners again, those images and the tables are are printed in the research paper. So you should take a, a look at those. And Dr. Cantor, when you saw, so those draw draws that occurred that were adaptive draws, so one-handed draws, like you said, at those closer distances where officers were either shooting in a tuck or from the hip position, were those in, were those shots one-handed? Uh, like, were they shooting it at the, at the speed of survival, one-handed as quick as they got their gun out of their holster? Or what did you see? Correct. Exactly what you're saying. They were shooting as quickly and as accurately as they could. And that is one of the takeaways that I wish we would have done and measured somehow was accuracy. But given our parameters, we we couldn't figure out really the best way to do that. So that is one aspect that, and that could potentially um, impact how those modifications really impacted success. Because if you're if you're returning fire, 
and, and using these um, drastic modifications and, and not being able to sight in and see what's going on on the other side of your barrel, there, there's a good chance that there, the accuracy and really the, the value of each discharge decreases because there's the, the impact of a center mass contact and a arm or grazing the arm contact, it's going to drastically change um, how effective you are at containing that individual charging at you. And, and, and that is a whole another story for another day with kind of the best way to measure that in these scenarios to see what was successful and what was actually useful for the officer. Maybe they were successful at the close distance because they modified, but that we, we aren't necessarily sure how, how useful those, those shots were. Right. But I think, you know, for me, Michael, when I read your study is, is what I highlighted and really stood out to me is that if this is what you're seeing in the research, and that is at close distances, 15 feet or less, there's such time compression and urgency to respond that the officer's brains is driving a motor action that is a one-handed draw, one-handed shot and moving one while shooting one-handed that then that surely should uh, tell us that our training needs to reflect those conditions. And I think largely there's a massive vacuum currently in most law enforcement agency firearms training because we do very little one-handed drawing and one-handed shooting, especially on moving, uh, moving targets, moving threats. And so your comment about accuracy is very important. I mean, when we look at the average accuracy, we know it's around 35% or so in officer involved shootings. And uh, so I think maybe if we take research like this and go, if this is what our officers are doing under these high stress, realistic conditions, our training should replicate that environment. Yeah, hundred percent. And, and, and even with that, with the mechanics training under stress, um, you know, me coming from a sports science background, a lot of it is how can we get these individuals actually move faster and the way they do that. And, and the way we can do that is by training fast movement tactics, you know, an individual who maybe just be learning a lateral movement. If we can train that, build them up to be more efficient in that, that's going to give them more time to execute an effective firearm response if it's required. But mechanics and understanding the mechanics just at a bare bone level is one piece of the pie. Now that you understand now that you understand what you need to do under this stressful situation, how can we get you to move as quickly as possible? And that's through obviously proper uh, commitment to the actual fitness side of it, but also the tactical drilling on a consistent basis under real world, stress because if we can train our body fast under stress we're going to perform under stress very well when it comes to the point where it is required of them right okay so let's unpack that a little bit more because i did want to get into this i know we're coming up quickly on an hour but this is important from a fitness tactical fitness perspective and uh, so i appreciate your background in that and when you look at 
the importance of lateral movement and the speed of that. Now, as I understand it, that type of movement is called a ground reaction force, a horizontal ground reaction force to be able to move rapidly laterally one direction or another. And there's certainly specific types of training that can target the systems that are required to optimize that movement. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I think it's very important. Yeah, yeah. So in, in in a real nutshell, power, muscular power is going to be the biggest factor and being able to move fast. Now, the way we do that is by moving lighter weight as quickly as possible. And whether that is body weight through agility movements, such as movement through cones, or it can be as, as technical as power cleaning, overhead press, med ball throws, whatever it may be. But muscular power is key is so vitally important for officers because power allows you to be quick and strong and being fast is the best case scenario for officers to contain a situation before it gets out of hand. And I say that because strength is good. It is good. I'm not going to be angry at an individual who is very, very strong, but if you cannot be quick with that strength, you increase the likelihood that an altercation gets drawn out and individuals can get injured. Whereas if an individual is powerful, muscular power, they are able to move quick, avoid conflict, but also when conflict arises, they're able to contain it quickly. So that is the huge takeaway with just general fitness for officers is muscular power. That is going to be the big um, important factor when you're trying to see what can what can us who are trying to educate and train these officers moving forward, what is the big fitness category that we should be thinking about? And that's going to be muscular power. They just got to be able to move fast and, and be able to lift a lot of weight in a short amount of time because that's going to be able to subdue the, the individual really quick but also be able to move their body very, really quick without the increased chance of falling over, which is going to lead them at, uh, I mean, a tactical disadvantage, like no, no, no other, but also be able to be efficient in that and effective in response to that. Cause just moving fast isn't good if you can't actually execute a very fast firearm draw. So, so it's multifaceted. So m- muscular power, but also building upon the mechanics of a fast and efficient draw. Right. And so a couple of things just to ask on there then. So you spoke about the ability to stay on your feet. So this uh, idea of proprioception, like rapid movement, uh, but actually maintaining good agility and balance and movement is, do you believe that? So if, if you wanted me to improve that tactical performance, that power, would I be best to put myself into some sort of a tactically functional high intensity training program that is a whole body type of training program because often i think what what we we do is we see isolated linear types of exercises to develop certain aspects of strength or even power but not whole body proprioceptive agility type of skill what's your thoughts on that yeah what what i would first say is 
you have to establish some type of baseline. And the baseline is, can you do what everyone else really just needs to do? So there's, there's general guidelines of, Hey, are you just doing general strength training a couple times a week? And are you aerobically fit? Are you engaging in some type of aerobic activity? That's just the bare bone because yes, you, you may have to pass a, a, a fitness test early on in your career, but individuals down the road, the, ability to maintain just a baseline level of fitness for a lot of times is lacking in law enforcement. So just getting them back to baseline is going to be the first step. And that's, that's really the hardest step. There's a lot of officers that I, that I've seen, they're well above that. And and they do a really good job of, of searching out other modes of activity of exercise such as you know band work or lateral movement work or plyometrics to really get their power up and going but another but asking asking uh, an officer who maybe is just trying to start out with exercise again it would be um it would be unrealistic to ask them to do a high level training before they establish that baseline so general you know just getting in the gym for a couple times a week, doing eight to 10 exercises of major muscle groups, upper body, shoulders, chest, back, legs. That's the first part. Build up just general strength. And then once they get there, the A, they're going to be exponentially better than what they were before in terms right. of movement. Mm. But at that point, then we can really take it to the next level and do more specific uh, movements to improve agility you know, what, whether it's doing practicing agility shuttles side to side, whether it's weighted vest side to side, or if it's more Olympic lifting to really get that whole body power um, engaged. So I, I, I think there's steps that need to be achieved. And that is going to be best for adherence long term, because unfortunately, fitness you can lose it really quick if you don't maintain it. So the best way for us to get buy-in with, with officers is to start them where they're at now, get them back to baseline. And then once they get to baseline, then you can really start addressing how to really improve power just that much more or, 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 or lateral agility that much more. So stepping stones is going to be huge. So there's no one size fits all approach. Um, it's going to be different for every officer. It's going to be different for different departments, depending on the step, the really the current like fitness level and health status of their officers, because being an officer compared to almost any other career out there, you are constantly under stress. So the, the health of the officer should be priority, getting them to a healthy state. And then once we get them to a healthy state, that's already going to improve their um, ability to maneuver. But then once they get there, then we can start building up um, their fitness, their power in, in more specific targeted ways. Perfect. Good. Excellent. So I have in my mind three significant implications from your research paper. And there may there may be more, but I think if trainers can grasp onto these three, think about them and apply them. And the first one is, is that uh, standing stationary with a rapidly aggressing threat is simply deadly. We've got to get officers moving off the spot, either either laterally or backpedaling. But as soon as we can get them moving 
we significantly improve their survivability rates. That's number one. Number two is, is that officers will often engage in real world situations and draw strokes one-handed, return fire one-handed because they're shooting at the speed of survival, not the speed of a gunfight. So our training should ensure officers are having the opportunity to train under those types of realistic conditions. And the third implication is that officer fitness for rapid lateral movement is key. The minimum baseline fitness is helpful. But what always strikes me, Dr. Cantor, is that athletes will spend more money and more time in personal training to go out and win a medal than a law enforcement officer will invest in their own training and their own fitness in order to ensure they come home to their family at the end of the shift. And so fitness is absolutely king. Did I did I miss any, uh, doctor? Do you want to add anything onto that? Is there any questions you wished I would have asked you that I didn't ask you that you want to provide comment on? I think all three of those are very, very, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. The only thing I would actually add to that in terms of you, you compared the athlete getting personal training and the officer not being willing or able to invest in themselves. I, I would, I would say that, that, that just like any um, organization and their employees, it comes from the top down and there has to be investment um, from, from the top to these officers. Um, that is the that is the long lasting way for officers to develop the fitness level to be healthy and to be fit and effective at their job, um, just like athletes. And and again, that's that's the lens that I bring it in, and 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 I think it's important because we treat athletes on this high pedestal because they're able to win Super Bowls, and one of the reasons why I I, I really enjoyed um, this study, but also just entering the world of tactical research specifically with police officers is you are not training for a gold medal or a win. You are training to survive and improve the outcomes of these violent scenarios that officers will encounter. Knowing that the support system for these officers has to drastically um, improve and it has to get prioritized because if not, there's going to be just a continual downturn in just the ability of these officers to be athletes. And, and, and I know that sounds weird to say, but police officers, law enforcement officers are athletes and they have to be treated as such. Therefore, they need the, the resources with fitness, health. I would go as far as say nutrition and injury prevention, just as much as your, your division one professional athletes, these, this group needs it just as much. If not, I, I would argue, I would say more, I think they need more resources than what professional athletes get. They need to be treated almost like royalty because they're doing such a challenging job. And I come at this with, no real, I, I, I say it's no necessarily necessary police experience out in the field per se. Um, I come at it from a sports science lens, looking in and seeing how much 
time and effort we put into athletes and how much time and effort is not being spent on this population. That's why I've spent the last four years trying to learn as much as I can and, and to add information and human performance measures to this area, because this group is lacking in evidence-based practices of how to use their fitness and human performance measures to improve their outcome, preparation, and efficiency out on duty. So that's kind of me in a nice bow of why I do what I do. I I went from wanting to get first place with the subjects I was dealing with to, hey, how can we get these individuals home at night to to their family? And 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 that's what drives me every day to really work with these and work with these individuals and learn as much as I can to help these individuals. Well, thank you, Dr. Cantor, and your dedication and passion for doing that certainly came through in this interview. And um, we uh, thank you for the research that you did this research paper, not only this one, but the other research that you've been involved in, and undoubtedly the other research papers that are going to be coming off your workbench in the coming months and years. We appreciate that because it is this research that helps us use an evidence-based approach to advance officer and public safety. So thank you, sir, for what you do. Thank you. I, I I appreciate coming on here and being able to share a little bit of what we're doing. And, uh, you know, I, I, I appreciate just the opportunity I've had to be able to do, to apply my skills and to apply my newfound passion to work with these individuals and this profession that, I mean, most down to earth individuals who are just so caring for, you know, they, they are willing to put themselves in front of you know, danger to protect everyone else. And, you know, they deserve so much praise and appreciation for that. And I'm just trying to do everything I can to kind of just make their day a little bit easier with some information they can use day to day. Well, thank you for that very much. And we look forward to having you back on the trainer's bullpen. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Thank you. Well, we hope you have enjoyed this episode of the trainer's bullpen. As always, our encouragement to you is that you would think critically and deeply about the critical aspects of this interview and how you can advance your training to make your students more effective performers and more adaptive decision makers. As a reminder, all the research reports or articles mentioned in the podcast are made available to you at the Trainers Bullpen website at trainersbullpen.com. Did you know that you can also subscribe to the Bullpen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify? but we encourage you to subscribe so you get alerts about new episode drops. Thank you for your dedication and for your commitment to officer and public safety.